So John, last week, kind of set the scene for us, uh, and he briefly dipped into the deep waters of current affairs. Uh, we spoke a little bit about Black Lives Matter uh, and the rank injustice that's a, with that. Today, we're going to be talking about injustice. Uh, in South Africa now, we've even got our own example of that. Collins Causa is an example of brutality. Uh, we've got school kids, amazing, just getting online and giving their examples of racist experiences. It's a beautiful time for our country as we start to stand up for injustice. Now, um, of course, this is not the only injustice occurring around the world. The reason we know about this is because we've got great media, great communication. People are telling us we've seen people uh, in action. All right. We've seen people around the globe join hands and do this. Now, as we speak about Habakkuk today, unfortunately, he wasn't as lucky as that. There was no social media. There was no anything, really, to help him get the word out. So as John mentioned, the Judeans, if we go back a little bit and just hit the scene just very briefly, the Judeans were going through a really dark time in their history. I mean, to some of the worst practices, such as child sacrifice, they were just far away from God. And in terms of a king, they had someone who was literally actively working against God, and he had no love for his people. Now, as the prophet of God, Habakkuk was watching the slow deterioration of his nation without the ability to tell anyone or tell anyone who could do anything except for God. And that's kind of how we got this letter. It's a lament to God, but it's also a conversation with God. Now, the cries of injustice disappeared under uh, the system of corruption that was current in Judea at the time. The courts were useless. The powerful always got their way. And as the nation of God, Habakkuk was feeling really frustrated. And he was looking up at the heavens, confused by why God was not doing anything. This is what he says in Habakkuk 1. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous that justice is perverted. So now in this area of justice, I'm at torn, I'm, I'm at war with myself continually. On one side, I'm super tired of hearing about injustice, right? That's what we hear in the news all the time. It's happening all around us. Personally, on a selfish level, I want peace and I want tranquility. In my job as well, I'm, I'm told about horrific conditions and the lives of refugees, trafficked children, people on the brink of, brink of death from corrupt governments. It's ex really exhausting. But it's also legitimate that you and I feel like this, right? But now on the other side, Habakkuk and I are like kindred spirits. I can't tell you how many times I've read a testimony from somewhere or been on the ground and seen firsthand the evil that persists in our world. And I've had this exact conversation with God. As I listen to the stories of thousands of George Floyds and Colin Causes all over the world who are tortured and killed and starving and persecuted and nothing seems to be stating, uh, changing the status quo, I find myself asking the same questions. Like, why is God not fighting for them? Why is he so silent about their plight? Why is he not raised up a nation to save these people who are helpless against corrupt governments and really evil, evil powerful people? The great thing is that God is not confined by our worldview. See, if we think we have the media and the journalists uh, kind of seeking out these stories, um, you jump on uh, any sort of web, news website, there's a 24-7 drumming support for a cause, whichever way you look at it. How much more do you think God sees kind of the smallest 
act of evil to the largest mass injustice throughout the world. At the beginning of the Bible, it's not pretty, but God writes this about us. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on earth, and his heart was broken. So you see, God sees everything, and his heart is broken. As the number of humans increase on the earth, so does the evil. There is no one who has a truly good heart. We all yearn for things that put us away from a perfect relationship with God. And our hearts yearn to be our own God. But God had a plan from the beginning, which is great. And in his answer to Habakkuk, I kind of see him saying this. He says, ah, oh, Habakkuk, finally you noticed. But just an FYI, I've been acting way before you picked this up. So buckle up, dude, because it's about to get real. Now, because this is a sermon, I kind of have to actually say what he did say, which is this. So look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that, would you, that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, this is a strange answer. But God is so sure of his answer that he goes into all the ways of how bad the Babylonians really are, just to push his point, right? So as a quick summary, he says this about them. They are to be feared. They are a dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves. They have an enormous army whose violence is legendary. They take no heed of other authorities and they mock justice systems. They destroy cities that have no regard for a greater power as they see themselves as the greatest power. Now, rightfully so, Habakkuk is horrified with his answer. He kind of stammers out this response. He goes, well, what do you mean killing this one evil with a greater evil? How is that possibly justice? We'll get to that. Now, one of the things the media, the social media, and the age of communication has created in us is this feeling like we know a lot, really. But we don't know what we don't know. In an instant, we can open a computer and we get access to tons of like journalistic stories from around the globe. And unfortunately, a plethora of opinions on social media, most of them not so good, giving us the illusion that we actually know what's going on in the world. And I myself am totally guilty of this. So for Habakkuk, okay, he's living in a population of around 70,000, not really big. He really thought he knew what was going on. His worldview was this really poor, small piece of the Middle East. And he thinks he can even get a wider view by uh, climbing the watchtower at the time to see, you know, this uh, God's promised army sort of approaching, because that's kind of the widest view that he can find. So although our communication has expanded, we suffer kind of from a similar syndrome, right? We actually think we know what's going on. Therefore, my opinion must matter. It's our imaginary feeling of knowing. But even in the age of information, there's only so much our tiny minds can consume. And those limitations always mean we bias in one direction or another. I love the way Paul says this in Romans about an issue in his time. He says, yes, we all know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. Now, because we think we know something, we believe we can pass judgment and we actually think our plans make sense. Uh, Habakkuk probably had this all worked out in his head, right? Before he had this conversation with God, he probably had a whole lot of things in his head, thinking if God just does this or that, this whole thing will be remedied. Maybe he thought it was a new president, a new government, the end of a lockdown, 
a Black Lives Matter movement, a change in the Supreme Court judges, whatever. And some of those things are most definitely great and good things, right? And God is using them to change hearts and minds and systems. They're great things. But God is so much bigger than our present circumstances. God has a plan to redeem the earth and bring nations and people to him. And he looks at our time and our blip on the time scale. And he says this as well. He says, I am God, the only God you've had or ever will have, incomparable, irreplaceable. From the very beginning, telling you what the ending will be, all along letting you in on what's going to happen, assuring you I'm in this for the long haul. I'll do exactly what I set out to do. So what is this ending we're going to spe he's speaking of? Well, we'll get there in a couple of minutes. We almost uh, will get there soon. Um, but Habakkuk rightly sees and hates a scenario, and he cries injustice. And God is saying this. He says, I know Habakkuk. Do you think I'm blind? I know every thought and every action of every human on the earth. My heart breaks for the lonely and the broken and the dying, the tortured and the persecuted person. There is no hurt. I don't see no injustice. I don't hate. If you hate this injustice, this pain, how much more do you think? I hate it. But listen, Habakkuk, I have a plan. Now, unfortunately, it was a bit late for Habakkuk to do anything for Judah. He sat on top of the watchtower watching the coming destruction and enslavement of his people. And this actually did come to pass. The damage in Judah had been done and God was moving to remedy and redeem his people by his plan. Now, throughout the Bible, God expresses his disgust at injustice. Right? God has a plan that involves us. And I, I love Lance's uh, verse because it just adds to the things that I'm going to just speak about here. You see, if the Judeans had just stepped into what God had asked of them, they may not have found themselves in a scenario. So God says in several places, he says in Isaiah, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and please the widow's cause. In Micah, he says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In another place in Isaiah, he says, No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Now, thankfully, across the world, injustice has been thrust into the spotlight with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a moment in which God is shining a spotlight on a global prejudice. It's an injustice which is placed right in front of us and we have to respond. We have to respond. It's a moment for grieving, for lamenting, for taking stock and for comforting. Now there's a lot of opinions. So let me try and explain it a little bit like this. If a woman with an abusive husband comes to you after she has been beaten, and kicked out of her home, saying, all men are evil. What she doesn't need is for you to demean her pain by saying something along the lines of, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not like that. Or no, not all men are evil. Haven't you seen? As Paul says in Romans, he says, we are to mourn with those who mourn. In her moment of grief, what she needs is an understanding arm to cry on and an understanding person to comfort her. In this moment of racial revelation, what we all need to do is to grieve over the pain which people legitimately feel, to be support for people who need healing. What we don't need is deflection onto other issues 
and comparisons with other injustices. We need to be light, to be the light that Jesus promised we would be to the world. And that often requires change from our side. So in order to help me explain this a little further, I'm going to paint a little picture. So one of the things you need to understand and remember about the old Testament is that it always points to the coming of God's plan. Every story essentially tells the same story. You just need to find it. Uh, in this in this case, while preparing the sermon, like I I really I found it while hanging up washing. It's a little epiphany that came in. Um, well, I was wondering, I, I was really wondering how, how I was going to talk about injustice in such a charged political atmosphere that we we're in. So, what is this ending to all this? What is God's injustice fix and plan? Well, to connect the dots, I'm going to tell you this little story. Okay. So there's this kid born to a poor working class family. They don't have much, but they work hard and they provide for this kid and his siblings. To survive, they work simple tradesmen's jobs. The government at this time is corrupt and really vindictive. They take more than they should and they subject the people to threats and violence to keep them in line. There's very little freedom. Some people try to fight the system. They too get violent, they organize killings, and in turn get killed. Everyone has an idea of what life would make, what, what, would, what would make life better. Maybe it's a war, uh, maybe it's a change in government, maybe it's a new powerful leader from their people. Anyway, this boy continues to grow, obedient and behaving like a good son. He grows up and starts his own business. For about a decade, he lives a quiet life, providing for those around him, all the while watching this injustice unfold in his country and community. People are murdered, his people are persecuted. One day in his 30s, he starts to gather people around him. He tells them amazing things about God. He says stuff like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Some people think he's crazy. Others think, he, others think he's a revolutionary coming to change the status quo. Some follow him, not really understanding, but hoping to see change. This man never says a harsh word out of turn. He stands for justice, but knows there's a bigger plan. He never sins, never puts a foot wrong. He always shows love and is filled with the zeal for God. Anyway, one day, those who are threatened by his popularity and countercultural teachings organize to have him taken to the corrupt government. They orchestrate his death. In the name of justice, they perform the greatest injustice ever witnessed on the earth. A perfectly good man is brutally tortured for hours witnessed by those who used to follow him and sing his praises. As his body is almost rendered bloodless, instead of handcuffs around his wrists, they restrain his hands and feet with long nails hammered into a wooden block. And instead of a knee to his neck, not allowing him to breathe, he slowly gasps for breath and suffocates as his body weight pulls him down on the cross on which he is nailed. See, no matter the person on the earth right now, there are none like Jesus. None of us is truly innocent. See, in the case of Habakkuk, he would have agreed that justice needed to be dealt to the Judeans. It was an unjust society. In Jesus's case, there was no just reason. This was the greatest injustice ever witnessed. Can you imagine the disciples, what they were thinking? Like that the anger they must have felt at this injustice. Peter was the lead disciple. He was an impetuous person, prone to sudden outbursts, and James and John were brazen, ambitious, loudmouths. Can you imagine what they would have been saying if they'd had social media? Anyway, through this injustice, and like that of a Habakkuk scenario, 
God had a plan from the beginning of human history. And as in a Baptist case, a severe injustice is followed by ultimate justice. You see, three days after the world's greatest injustice, God performed the greatest miracle by raising Jesus from death. Now, there is a very specific reason this had to happen. See, from the beginning of the human race to this point, God had been faced with a ton of Habakkuk scenarios. He continually attempted to warn and guide his people to love him by using prophets and people who are speaking out, sermons. One time he used a flood, other times he's used armies. But the condition of the human heart is always towards itself, to make itself its only God. See, God knows we are completely incapable of being perfect. And being a perfect God, he would have to enact judgment on everyone. See, ultimate justice is that we are all judged and we all are found wanting. God had to create an injustice, a system, create an instance of justice so far removed from what humans could achieve that nothing could change it. See, God had to take Jesus' sinless and let his perfect life replace ours. All God's judgment was placed on the shoulders of Jesus. He received it all. See, because of who we are, the greatest injustice of all time had to be enacted. So we would not face legitimate justice. If I was to get a little bit vulnerable with you at this moment, <clears throat> I would say if I was to write down all of the things that I know that I've done wrong onto a piece of paper and it'd probably take a long time, but if I just spent an hour doing it and I filled a couple of pages of all the stuff that I know that I've done wrong, I've heard people, I've said terrible things, I've done terrible things. And I also take it even to my best friend uh, worse to a lawyer, worse to a perfect God. I know that in that moment, <laughs> I'd be horrendously scared. I also know that there'd be no protests for this innocent person. There'd be no news coverage of me being condemned because I know that that stuff I've done, <laughs> I know it's really, really, really bad. Now, the counter side of this is that coming under God's protection from justice requires that we receive that transfer of the guilt under Jesus' shoulders. It's a moment where we surrender our lives. It's a moment of love, not a moment of fear. It's a moment that really lasts for eternity. It's a beautiful thing. So how did the disciples respond once they realized all of this? This was amazing news, right? Well, this is kind of where I'm going to land it a bit. They love people. See, love is actually doing something i can't say i love my wife and i never do anything love for people god created has requires something and it's sometimes really really hard you see for the disciples it meant risking their lives the disciples told people about god what had happened to them what he had done and they loved those who had injustice enacted upon them see the best way to fight injustice is with love when we remove love from our fight against injustice then as Timothy Keller, a theologian in the States, talks about, he puts it this way. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, in other words, if you make that your idol, you will divide the world into good and bad, and you will demonize your opponents. You see, thanks to the media, we see this planning with the Black Lives Matter movement. In some cases, people are killed. Good, innocent people are killed on both sides. And in others, they're exchanging tears and hugs and extending forgiveness and grace. See, to be love in this generation and to see change happen, which it must, change must happen. We cannot demonize the law enforcement, the army, government systems, and the like. 
Unfortunately, even as Christians, I see us getting this wrong. On occasion, we have demonized other churches, denominations, non-Christians, other religions, when our job is really to approach and love. Also, in our lives, there are moments of injustice when we need to be understood and comforted. There are moments where we feel like we're suffocating. We can't breathe. But it's in these moments where God gives us breath, both through his plan to end all justice one day. And it's a beautiful scene at the end of the Bible with Jesus coming on a, on a, on a big white horse and a sword tattooed on his thigh, his robe dipped in blood. It's, it's hectic, but good. All right. And also in the eternal comfort that we live under his loving protection from judgment. See, as God instructed us, we have to stand up against injustice and use our skills, resources, and talents to give and to sacrifice, to engage and to instruct, to listen and also to talk. It is always, always a time for action, but not to hurt or revert to unkind speech, to judge and to demonize opponents. Listen, as we finish this, I just want to end with this one sentence. Today, as we take this in, we really need to think to ourselves, in what ways are we helping those we cannot breathe.